and welcome to episode 5 of Divergent by Design, a podcast is dedicated to exploring the ways that you can use universal design for learning in your classroom. My name is Jonathan Wiley, and I'm joined today by two of my favorite people. Yes! First up, Lynn Kleinmeier, how are you today? I am fantastic. And you? I'm good, but I'm more excited by how well Kelly Robertson is today. How are you, Kelly? I'm great. Thank you. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah, we're so excited. We have Kelly with us today, our first guest. So today we are taking a deeper look at the first component of that final column of the UDL guidelines, which is action and expression. As part of our exploration today, uh, we've invited Kelly because we're going to be taking a look at the powerful advantages of assistive technology. So, uh, Kelly is joining us as our colleague and our fellow UDL enthusiast. So, Kelly, would you go ahead and share a little bit about yourself, your role, and maybe a little bit about your UDL journey? Sure. So, my background is in speech pathology, and I was a speech pathologist at Grantwood here for 10 years, and then I moved on to um, autism consultant and did that for 10 years. And then this is my second year in a new role here at the agency, working in accessibility and assistive technology. Do you have an official title for your new role here? What do you like to go by? It's officially like accessibility lead, but yeah, I don't know. (laughs) If if you could define yourself in any way, what would you title yourself? Mm, Maybe like an accessible education coach. (gasps) I I love love it. Yes. Mm -hmm. Uh, Note that, Grantwood. (laughs) So tell us a little bit about your UDL journey. So my UDL journey, I think, has um, kind of what I was always kind of a quirky learner myself um, and always interested in the brain. And so that kind of led me to the field of speech pathology, really looking at the brain and how people learn and the cognition and how the brain works and like even how after a stroke, how you kind of work around that skill and, and build some other skills up. Um, and so that speech pathology led me to then autism consultant because I was really um, interested in how those learners, um, that neurodivergence and how they all learned and processed information. Um, And then I was kind of in autism thinking, but gosh, like all of us are kind of neurodivergent and and think differently. And and I didn't really want to be maybe limited by autism so much anymore and wanted to work with a wider variety of students. And that's what you're doing right now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're so excited to have you here. You know, I, I know it's always nice. Um, obviously, Jonathan and I started a podcast because we really love talking about UDL. Um, so it's just nice to have an, a fellow UDL enthusiast joining us. And another thing that I appreciate is that um, lens that you bring because it's slightly different than the lens that Jonathan and I bring. So we really appreciate that and appreciate you joining us today. Yeah, and maybe that uh, is a good segue to introducing the topic that we're talking about today, because as as Lynn hinted, we are diverging a little bit from our uh, previous formats, and that this episode does have direct correlations to maybe um, the needs of specific groups of students. Um, but as we have always talked about in previous episodes, what is what is beneficial for some can be beneficial for many. And I think you'll see some examples of that as we talk through this particular checkpoint today. 
Yeah. Uh, so just contextualizing this particular column, um, action and expression is really the what of learning. It's uh, how students are, are navigating and being able to share what they've learned um, in terms of the content or, or the standards, materials, etc. Um, one of the things that I do want to kind of note is that the column is called action and expression. But true confessions, sometimes my mind automatically goes to the expression piece. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that action component is is really, really important. So we are really delving into this first component of the column, which is called physical action. Yeah, so the uh, physical action part there, you know, there is a, a, a part to that that we maybe sometimes do overlook, like Lynn said, but, you know, looking for ways to reduce barriers to learning that would be introduced by the motor demands of a task. That's explicitly put there in that guideline. That's a direct quote there. So when we're thinking about that um, in this episode, we're going to give you some examples of what that might look like or what that might involve. <laughs> All right. So I do appreciate what you you did earlier, Jonathan, when you were talking about this particular episode diverging from our previous formats. I see what you did there. Um, we are going to kind of diverge from our general conversations about the considerations for uh, each of these components to really delve into the two checkpoints, because there really are only two in this particular component. Yeah, two checkpoints. The first one is to vary the methods for response and navigation. So different ways that students can respond to things or navigate uh, their way through content. And the second one is optimizing access to tools and assistive technologies. So making sure that your students have access to the tools that they need in order to learn with the rest of their students. Yeah. So when I think about that particular, um, the first checkpoint, that varying the methods for response and navigation, and I'll be honest, um, I kind of in my learning process over the last couple of years have really kind of uh, honed in on this one to kind of build my own capacity. And one of the things that I kind of that was something that was super small and actionable that rose to the forefront of my mind was this idea of thinking about your processing time. Um, I am personally a processor. <laughs> um, when somebody asks me a question, I almost get this like deer in the headlights look because I need a moment to really kind of gather my own thoughts and, and to kind of um, really formulate my ideas in a way that's actually going to <laughs> make any sense when I share them. And so that was a particular uh, highlight for me when I was looking at this checkpoint, there was really a whole piece about thinking about the processing time and considering your practices. And, you know, I know, Kelly, your background as a speech language pathologist and kind of when you see that, what are some of those things that kind of surface to your mind? I just think it's so hard for us to give people processing time. So a lot of students, you know, a general rule of thumb is at least 10 seconds. But I know some students that take 30 or 60 seconds. And if you really <laughs> think about what 30 or 60 seconds feels like, yeah. that feels very uncomfortable. And so then we jump in again. But the problem is that some students, um, especially I'm talking about some of the students that I know on the spectrum, when you start over and represent too quickly – that resets their processing. So they have to start over from the beginning. And so you're just continually prolonging that processing and making it really frustrating for that. 
Yeah, and I think there's there's like a certain amount of pressure you feel as the learner as well, because if you your teacher asks you a question in the room and all your peers are looking at you and waiting, and then you've got to get over that part first before you can actually engage your brain in the processing part. So, yeah, it, it's tough. Even 10 seconds can seem like an eternity sometimes. Yeah, so I as I read through, you know, what are some things that um, we as, as educators or as teachers or <laughs> even as human beings could be mindful of when thinking about this processing time? Um, I think just forcing yourself sometimes. I know I have to force myself to slow down in my speaking and even force myself to pause at certain points so that that's, I really need to work on that maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then, you know, knowing that pausing doesn't even stop there. Sometimes it's visual pausing. So even talk about you know, overwhelming students and their processing. Their processing is also visual. So if you have things all over the room and there's mm. not kind of white space to even visually process in a classroom and kind of have those visual breaks, uh, the OTs will talk about that, um, that that can be overwhelming as well and bog down that cognitive processing process. So it's not just verbal processing. It's also visual you know, the auditory, all of all of that can take processing time. Yeah, and I think Lynn and I have both had conversations with different teachers about that in terms of when they're putting content into like a learning management system like Google Classroom and Canvas and things like that and talking about how to maybe chunk and design that content so that it's not like so overwhelming and reduces that cognitive load on there too. So I think that would fit in well with that too. One thing I just wanted your your input, Kelly, when I read through, um, one of the, the pieces of this particular checkpoint does talk about, and I'm going to read for us, an instructor must ensure that there are multiple means for navigation. So what exactly does that mean? I just think of navigation as the route I'm going to take to whether it's interact with a, an assignment, maybe on a computer, maybe a website, maybe a, um, and it could be a paper pencil assignment. Like, how am I going to navigate my way through this process and, and making sure that there are options um, because we don't all learn or express the same way? Yeah. And you know, so I think about that, that providing alternatives to, you know, to physically responding or indicating selections is one of the other pieces. And so just being very mindful of, of helping kids manage all of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's certainly. And I think, you know, when we hear the words like action and expression, you kind of, one of the ways that we often expect kids to respond in that way, maybe through writing, um, and I don't think we always realize how difficult and complex writing really is. Mm-hmm. Um, I think of the, like that, I think I've said before that Nike, just do it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I've even heard, I think, just do it, you know, but I don't think we're thinking that writing actually takes 40, more than 40, over 40 cognitive subskills to do the act of writing. That's not only the motor act of writing, that's also the word retrieval, the sequencing, the vocabulary, the language, the syntax and word order that you're putting the words in, and then the voice that you're using and mm-hmm. what you're trying to convey in the writing. So there are so many components to writing, and then that can really make it difficult to decide what is the barrier and then how do we um, work around it. But I think the biggest thing is just knowing that writing (laughs) as a means of, you know, expression is just so much more 
than it sounds. Mm. I really appreciate what you said. It's just that that awareness and that mindfulness of our practices and what we're asking of students, um, both in just our, our practices as teachers of, of the ways in which we're asking students, both verbally and you talked about visually and that act of writing. And so the second checkpoint in this particular um, component is really about optimizing access for tools and assistive technologies. And so maybe it's because of my bias of um, being a former teacher librarian, um, but really kind of focusing on the access part. You know, that's just a component of um, how students get to the content and the materials and tools. But then I think about, Kelly, what you were talking about, that navigation piece. And that's where accessibility comes in. It's really that ability to interact with content and materials or the tools themselves even. Um, and so I think there's sometimes this misconception that just because things are, are born digital, that they're born accessible. And so it's it's circling back to this whole mindfulness piece. Um, so then thinking about, okay, we have access to all of these tools. And what are some of the advantages? And what are some of those things that we maybe need to be mindful of as teachers when we're asking our students to use these tools or introducing these tools to our students? I think certainly the availability of a lot of these tools to all students more universally has has be, like reduced a lot of barriers for students. But then AT doesn't go away, right? Assistive right. tech always kind of stays there because you always know our brains are as unique as our fingerprints. And we're all going to have like a, a kind of different profile. And so there are always going to be students that maybe can't access that. So then it's thinking around, you know, what is it with the access and where do where does the student have the strengths? So, for example, in thinking about physical abilities and, and physical strengths, um, a student that may be in a wheelchair, where do they have movement? Where is it? blinking? Is it eye gaze? Is it head movement? Is it arm movement? Is it finger movement? And so, and we have, you know, tools for all of those. So for example, um, mouse navigation, you may have, you know, a student may be able to run the mouse from an eye gaze device. Another student may have movement in their finger and there's a fingertip mouse so hmm, you can really? use that to like huh. click, and so it just takes the um, fingers. Um, the you know some of the things that maybe even you've seen or people in the office might have a vertical mouse um, that you may have. Um, some students, um, the mouse can be kind of what I want to say more distal <laughs> or farther away from the screen. And so some students will do better if they have direct access to the screen. So then that's thinking about maybe, you know, everyone's got a Chromebook, you know, but is that accessible for the students? So some students, even though they have the Chromebook, can't access that content and they may need a touch screen or they might need uh, an adapted stylus or maybe even some students have an, a head stylus. And then you're thinking about also screen placement. So it's all of those little adjustments. But I think the big thing is just knowing that there are options out there. <laughs> and so if we just, and there is no right answer. Um, it's not like anyone's an assistive technology expert. I don't consider myself an expert. I think it's just thinking about the options. You know, what do I need? And is there something out there that we could put together that works for a, sp a specific student? 
Yeah, and I've talked to some of your colleagues about this in the past, and you know, they've said to me that you know we think about assistive technology, and sometimes that that word technology takes our brain to digital electronic things, but sometimes it can just be you know low tech things like pencil grips and you know different things like that. Is that fair yeah. too? Yeah, certainly. Um, math manipulative. So if you have right. a student that needs, you know, your fingers could technically be if you're a counter with fingers that could be assistive technology. So could be a pencil grip, could be a graphic organizer. Um, it's really any tool, any any item, um, any feature that that is really required um, for a student to make that task more engaging um, and to make them more independent and feel like they function better. Just going to pick up on one other thing you said. You said um, that assistive technologies, they're more accessible when uh, the whole district or the whole school is is bought in on these type of things and I know we do have districts in our area where they've got the entire like read and write suite or they've got the Don Johnson suite and things like that what I'm sometimes hearing is that you know it's used more in some classrooms than others and you know when we think about you know gen ed classrooms and teachers who might not immediately their brain might not go to that tool as something that they would use as part of instruction. Have you got any tips or ideas that you might you know, have for people like that to get them more involved and to get students using these tools? Um, I think that adults sometimes <laughs> have some of the barriers too, because yeah. I always give the example um, also of like, my mom was like so not technologically inclined at all. And like, I remember like getting her this universal remote and being like, here, now you can, because I thought it would simplify things and maybe you can. Right. Oh my gosh, like it took a lot of instruction and a lot of going through things with her. And so um, I think two things on that. I think one is sometimes I'm the one as the adult that maybe is a little bit tentative about trying out the technology. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think it's just, we're not perfect, you know, acknowledging we're not perfect with it. You're going to mess up. It may not work, but we're, we're trying it and we're modeling for kids, right? Kind of growth mindset and trying new things. And that's a really, you know, great thing that you're modeling. And I think the second thing I wanted to bring out from that was just um, how many times that student needs to kind of interact with that tool to really be successful. And ideally, you know, these students are going to go to college with a lot of these tools. And so mm. the more that we can demonstrate how it can be used and, and model that and practice it and have students practice it, the more that they're apt to use that and have that be um, more of an automatic skill for them. So Kelly, you know, something I really wanted to circle back to and, and, and resurface because it was so impactful for me um, just listening to you right now is this idea of um, really that definition of assistive technology. And you really kind of helped shift my thinking when you were talking about um, – assistive technology, that it can be anything that's going to help really give students that ability to interact with content. You know, it could be as simple as the counting on fingers or manipulatives with math. And so it just made me think about, um, you know, some of those misconceptions in regards to assistive technology. And you were just talking about, you know, sometimes we as teachers can sometimes be those barriers. So what are some other misconceptions that you've en encountered that um, maybe would help us shift our thinking just a little bit? I would say one of the most um, repeated misconceptions that I still hear mm -hmm. is uh, that it's cheating, that using mm. certain tools yeah. or using something is cheating. And I, you know, think back to like, 
you know, my own kids and whether it's glasses or an asthma inhaler, would you say, well, that's cheating. You should be able to breathe <laughs> and just breathe through it. <laughs> just do it. <laughs> I know you don't need an inhaler, but like things like that, like that's not cheating. That's just helping kind of even the playing field a little bit and getting someone in the arena so that they even feel empowered, you know, to do some of those tasks and, and feel good about interacting with peers and being included and belonging in that learning. Um, another uh, feature uh, or misconception that I um, have found a lot would be that it's something special or complex. And we kind of talked about it. it can be something pretty easy, but I know that still people hear assistive technology, quote unquote, mm -hmm. and kind of think, oh my gosh, it's going to cost a lot. It doesn't have to. Right. <laughs> yeah. A lot of things are pretty um, cheap or reasonable, or I mean, you kind of cook up on your own. Like, you know, it, it could be something like a um, kind of a lift for a student's elbow so that they're, you know, can access the keyboard a little bit better. It can be things that you just maybe make out of materials that you have that helps improve a student's access. So, um, but AT truly is, you know, for specifically for those students um, with disabilities. However, things from the AT world have kind of shifted over into, you know, universal benefits for all of us. So, um, and I think too, another consideration or, you know, um, maybe a myth that I hear um, is that, well, all students have Chromebooks or all students have Read and Write for Google. So that's, they've got access. And I think, we got to think again. Each student has that brain that's as, as unique as their fingerprint. And so there's still going to be students that read and write Google still might not meet their needs. Mm -hmm. And they need a different program or um, a touch screen, perhaps, instead of just the basic Chromebook in order to, to access that. So just still thinking, you know, don't, it's not a check mark. <laughs> yep, <laughs> yep, I did it and I'm done. You're just constantly reflecting on you know, what may be barriers as to why this student isn't maybe interacting more or showing me more or involved more in the learning. So the answer to this might be to contact your local AEA, but um, if a teacher, if I was a teacher in a classroom and I had suspicions that um, a student or multiple students were having trouble interacting with the content or being able to navigate through content or just, you know, like you were talking about, you know, just because they have Chromebooks or iPads doesn't mean it's all accessible. What are some steps I could go through to help, you know, narrow down where the, the problem might be? And I would say, first of all, don't sell yourself short as a teacher because okay. you may have the knowledge, like you may have a trick that's like really good for the student and that helps them overcome that barrier. Um, the other thing would be um, I've had OTs or occupational therapists, PTs or physical therapists, because um, maybe it's positioning of a student who might be in it. Mm. Maybe they would do better in a stander for this part of the class. So, you know, collaborating with those OTs or PTs or your autism consultant or your special ed literacy consultant or your assistive technology person, go ahead and, and brainstorm, but, but know that you have value to bring to the table because you might have some really great ideas that the other person then can just like tweak a little bit and you can be off and running. So um, I think just that willingness to brainstorm and remembering that 
there's not one person that's the expert. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a problem-solving kind of solution-finding journey and process, and it's just being open to thinking about the, ide- the ideas of options. Yeah, so just the ability to explore some options, try mm-hmm. things out, see, is this going to work? No? Okay, let's move on to the next thing. It's not a, a failure or, or anything like that. No, yeah, yeah, that's just part of the process. And I think that um, an important thing, <laughs> and we often miss it, um, but is just make sure that you have the student involved. Make sure, you know, mm-hmm. if the student is non-speaking, make sure at least that you're reading their cues and that you're seeing some of, you know, if they are expressing an emotion or a, you know, um, kind of pulling back from something, reading that body language, hearing their words. Um, many students will tell you exactly. <laughs> many work. aren't shy, are they? <laughs> many students will tell you, well, I just need this, you know, or some students will be um, maybe hesitant to try something at first. And then that's an entry point for kind of a coaching conversation with a student of, you know what, like new stuff is hard for all of us. And Mm -hmm. it feels really awkward at first for me to try something new, but let's just give this a week or two weeks and I'll keep checking in with you and let's see how it goes. And so um, I think giving the students that kind of timeline ahead of time and relating to them that, that's kind of part of trying something new and it will be uncomfortable. It just acknowledges that. And I think the student sees that as, as a partnership in finding the right solution. Right. I mean, it goes, it kind of circles back to that whole entire engagement column. You know, it's just, it's kind of cyclical here that you involve them and, and, Obviously, they're the end users. And so getting their feedback and their input and not being afraid to ask your students is super valuable advice. I had a student that was um, very, very bright, very bright um, on the autism spectrum. And he had a diagnosis of dysgraphia. And he had not written anything since fourth grade. And he's now an eighth grader. And severe aversion to writing. And so I had some time to kind of process with him and, and we kind of like dissected out, you know, what it was the issue with writing. And, you know, of course there's voice typing, but he didn't want voice typing either. <laughs> um, he didn't want anything recorded on any document because his perception was if it's, if I said it once or it's written down somewhere, I'm always growing in my knowledge. You know, he's a very science thinker and and I'm always changing my opinions. Mm -hmm. And so I don't want that documented somewhere with my name (laughs) um, attached to it because he wanted to like know that he's knowledgeable and he didn't want to be wrong in the future. And so then it's thinking around how do we work around that, you know, and the best thing for him was actually to have an in-person kind of conversations for, for assessment checkpoints um, and didn't want it recorded or anything, but was fine with that because he could feel like he could change his opinion as he learned more. So, so yeah, all kinds of, I love working with neurodiverse kids <laughs> and I love problem solving um, and I love the perspectives. Like these kids have super awesome, unique perspectives. And I just think that that's so powerful when they can share how they learn best and and help find the solution. I have so appreciated this conversation um, because I think part of it too, uh, sometimes we talked about it at the very beginning of the episode that um, sometimes we, we need to diverge from our original thought patterns. And so it's been really 
enlightening. <laughs> I can't think of the, the best word to describe, but I just, I've so appreciated this conversation with you, Kelly, because it's helped shift my thinking um, in terms of the power of assistive technology, what assistive technology really is. I, truth be told, when I first started exploring the UDL guidelines, I kind of got into my own head um, about this physical action piece. And you just helped remind me that it doesn't have to be as complex and that we are this this whole UDL journey is really about becoming expert learners. Nobody has to be the expert, um, but to really kind of think differently um, about some of our approaches and, and to be mindful of our students. So I thank you so much for joining us today. It's been amazing. I love talking about it. And so I'm probably talking too much, but <laughs> not at all. <laughs> no, not at all. No, not at all. So let's finish up with our challenge, our episode challenge. We like to leave you with something to get your brains thinking a little bit more beyond what we were talking about in this episode. And this time, it looks like we have a two-part challenge, Lynn Kleinmeyer. So explain yourself, lady. Okay. Okay. So our episode challenge for you is kind of twofold. Part one is to challenge yourself to do a little self-audit of your practices. Um, And really, let's be honest, listeners, this is really for me. This is my self-challenge that I'm putting out there that I need accountability partners for. Um, But thinking about moments where we can practice the pause with some wait time or thinking about... uh, the questions that we're asking, and I'm notorious for asking multiple questions back to back to back, um, but just helping raise our awareness of where we can take a breath and slow down uh, to give our uh, colleagues, our students, our fellow human beings an opportunity to process. So that's part one. And part two. Uh, So part two of our challenge is to do some more exploration of some assistive technology uh, to put yourself in other shoes kind of challenge because, you know, our lived experiences are not all the same. So we've got a few options for you. Jonathan, why don't you share kind of your option and then I'll share mine. I think these are great things to do um, because I know I've been part of like some disability simulations where it really puts you in the place of a learner who has specific learning disabilities. Um, So just it really helps build some empathy, I think, in people to help them see what it's like from from a student's point of view. So one of the things you could try out that is completely free that is probably built into all your devices is this idea of voice control as an alternative navigation feature on Mac and iOS. There, it's literally called voice control. I think on Windows, it's called Windows speech recognition, where there are ways you can, you know, open apps and navigate through things on your device just with voice commands. And some students are going to be using that type of thing you might not have that student right now you might not have that student next year but one day you could have a student like that in your classroom and just helps you put yourself in your in their shoes to experience what that might be like yeah or as an alternative we also have a challenge for you to practice um, alternative navigation on a website Um, so if you are listening to us and you want to try something right now but you don't have your device right 
handy or you don't want to practice the voice navigation, here's the other challenge. So linked into the show notes is uh, a tutorial of how to browse a website using only your keyboard. So the challenge is you navigate your way to any website and by using some uh, simple keyboard commands, for example, tab, uh, to kind of navigate through the website and just see what does that look like? Um, and how would you, how is that different than kind of the scrolling that you maybe normally do just as an exercise to raise your own awareness? I've never done this before, but I'm looking at it right now and I'm thinking, yeah, I'm going to give this a try. Well, good. And hey, I'll go try the voice control. See, look at us rising to the challenge. Teamwork makes the dream work, right? <laughs> yes. This is the best episode ever. All right. So Kelly, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. And as always, we hope that these challenges and the episode itself have provided you with some grounding and will help you keep growing. Our music for the podcast is What's the Angle by Shane Ivers of SilvermanSound.com and is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 international license.